Welcome. You're listening to But Seriously, What is Engineering? with me, Kartiki Gupta. This is a podcast series from the University of Queensland that explores all corners of engineering. Achieving global sustainability is where their passion is. Today we talk to Dr. Vigya Sharma, lecturer in humanitarian engineering at the University of Queensland, and Ira Fabello, a current electrical engineering student. Welcome to you both. Hello, thanks for having us. Thanks, Gadagi. Lovely to be here. Vigya, I'm going to start with you. Um, You've had a very diverse career to date. Take us back to when you graduated as an engineer. You mentioned you were selling software. That was your first job. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I graduated from an engineering college in India moons ago. In reasonably good engineering colleges, you get jobs on campus while you're still there. Um, So you haven't graduated yet. And I got an IT company, which picked six of us. So I was one of them. We didn't know what we thought we might be coding software, although I wasn't an IT engineer. I was really an instrumentation, which is kind of a subset of electrical here. And uh, no, when we got to the offices and we got inducted into selling software. So I was selling this speech recognition software to Supreme Court judges in New Delhi for two years. I met a lot of important people. Your master's coursework and your PhD were not really related to your undergrad degree. Tell us a bit about the work you've done in your master's and PhD. I did two years of selling software, but then I didn't think it was my calling. I was, it, this was also the time when the environmental sort of climate change and other environmental issues were really gaining a lot of prominence globally. And I felt pulled towards understanding where environment sits or cuts across with social issues. So I decided to pursue a master's program in Stockholm at a Swedish university. The program was in English, but it was called the Envi- an MSc in Environmental Engineering and Sustainable Infrastructure. And as I later discovered, it was a really interesting program because it was truly cross-disciplinary. It was jointly run by the School of Architecture and the School of Urban and Regional Planning on the one hand and then the School of Civil Engineering. I was doing environmental engineering subjects like environmental hydrology and physical processes, but also sustainable urban and rural development and studying about the Millennium Development Goals at the time. So it was really an eye-opener for me, coming as a core technical engineer to then understanding about the social issues of how we live and where we live and what impacts us. So that was my master's degree and I had a six-month thesis component and for that I decided to go the social science way and I decided to look at the inequities between the global north and the global south, so the developing countries versus developed countries. And I was interested in looking at are there any common themes between them? So what are the synergies that we can find through education, focus on health and infrastructure between those two parts of the world? As I read more, I wanted to learn even more, and that triggered me to think about doing a PhD. And I was applying to a bunch of universities all all around the world, and English-speaking countries was obviously a pull. So I ended up at Adelaide University in Australia with the School of Geography, Population, and the Environment, and then did a PhD on totally on social sciences, a subset of human geography. And what was your PhD on? I started off looking at a model example of development in the developing world. So there's a state in South India, which is called Kerala, which is really considered an outlier state 
across most of the developing world for its high human development index. And I was interested in how Kerala had achieved what it had while the rest of India was still kind of struggling. Um, so I wanted to understand the, process, the processes which were going in making Kerala that paradigmatic development model. And then I wanted to also look at Sweden as a representative case, if you like, for the global north, because I had contacts in Stockholm. I thought it would be viable. I mean, in PhDs, you also look at the practicalities of doing research. So then I decided to, do, to look at Sweden and why it had achieved what it had and how. So I ended up doing a comparison of Kerala and Sweden and trying to look at the best of both worlds and trying to understand can we emulate some of the learnings from Kerala for the developing world and for, from Sweden for the developed world. So it was looking at governance and, and a host of um, policy decision-making processes across both of those worlds. So what were the key differences in your case studies between Kerala and Sweden? One of the discoveries that I made, which also surprised me, were that none of those two cases, which I went in thinking were perfect, were actually quite perfect. So Kerala had its own flaws. So Kerala had 100% or 99.9% literacy rate at the time, when average Indian literacy was sitting at about the 60% mark. But then I was talking to experts in Kerala, and they were very adamant about how Kerala had only achieved literacy, but not education. So while it had 100% literate, literate people, they, weren't, they didn't have vocational training, or they didn't have, you know, they, didn't, they weren't employable, so to speak. And therefore, Kerala still had one of the highest rates of unemployment in the country. So, and that was a finding I didn't go prepared for. And I think it was quite revealing that you can be, you can achieve the first generation outcomes, which is good health, good education. But to be really converting Kerala into a potential Brisbane would take far more effort and far more time, I guess. And Stockholm also, I found in Sweden that there were pockets of really strong environmental ethics and responsibility, but there were challenges still. There were, you know, cases of underlying corruption, but it, the corruption was at such higher level that it didn't make it to the local papers. And the general population was, was naive, so to speak, about it. So there were, there were challenges also in Sweden. So no, nothing in the world is perfect is yeah. pretty much what my PhD told me. <laughs> That's really interesting, Vigyaf, um, from an engineering degree to um, doing all the work in social sciences and your PhD. It's such an interesting career path that you're yeah. on. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I'm keen to hear from you. You mentioned in one of our conversations that you're heavily involved with Engineers Without Borders yep. um, here at, at university. Firstly, tell us a little bit about Engineers Without Borders and where has your passion stemmed from for the work that you do with them? Engineers Without Borders is a non-for-profit organisation that I believe started here in Australia um, and they focus a lot on creating social change through humanitarian engineering. So they work in a lot of disadvantaged communities here in Australia and as well as overseas. But I guess my passion for humanitarian engineering kind of stemmed back from my childhood. I grew up in the Philippines and the lifestyle there is very different to what it is here in Australia. Um, and while I was very fortunate to, you know, have access to education and all the necess necessities that I had, living there, you kind of notice every day that there's these people who still don't have access to, you know, clean water or sanitation or to education. 
and coming to an engineering degree here in Australia, I actually didn't know that there was this thing called humanitarian engineering. I kind of just stumbled upon it from first year through uh, one of the courses that we had to take. The project was facilitated by Engineers Without Borders and we had to create, as a team of six undergraduate engineers, create this water filtration device to solve one of the real-world problems that um, Engineers Without Borders was trying to solve in one of the communities in Africa. And so the project was using grey water. We had to create a fertiliser and uh, irrigation water out of that. And it was to solve the community's problem that they their livelihoods were very dependent on agriculture, but yet they were facing problems of you know climate change, not having enough water to actually um, water all their crops so then, then, they, then they can make a living out of it, and also really poor soil quality. So... And it was amazing to see that, you know, even as a first-year engineer, that you can actually create really, you know, these these solutions that can really make an impact um, to these disadvantaged communities. Fantastic. So have you been overseas with the Engineers Without Borders team? Yep. So Engineers Without Borders actually hosts each year um, a couple of their humanitarian design summits. And I was lucky enough to travel to Nepal last year for a two-week humanitarian design summit trip and we lived in a rural community in Nepal um, and actually stayed with um, their homestay families and so really got to live out their lives and really see some of the problems that they were facing that they may not necessarily know and so using our engineering skills being able to analyze their day-to-day workings and ideate some some solutions that can help them improve the quality of their life. And what a fantastic cultural experience for you as well, like actually staying with the family and experiencing their day-to-day lives. So what was the project that you did in Nepal? So my team focused on the tourism aspect of the community. So we stayed with homestays. And so that was a big part of their, I guess, livelihood was that they were generating quite a bit of income from homestays from both uh, local and international tourists, but they were struggling to communicate and improve on... They were struggling to communicate with their foreign tourists and didn't know how to improve their experiences and especially also vice versa. The, The tourists weren't able to communicate with the homestay families because obviously they didn't know any Nepali and... The homestay families didn't know a lot of English. And so um, my team created this uh, feedback form. It wasn't, you know, an engineering solution, but it still used kind of engineering thinking to come up with it. So this form just kind of was to provide feedback back to the homestay families, not using any words, but actually using symbols to try and communicate, you know, how, what is it that they did really well and what is it that they could improve on and so just yeah just to improve that aspect of the activities every day yeah what a great experience and such a cool little project that you got to do in Nepal like using symbols to get feedback yeah. so Vicky over to you now um how have the skills that you gained in your engineering degree helped you with the work you've done to date what what are some of the really sort of important skills that you've you've been able to acquire look i think everything i couldn't possibly complete my PhD or even think of jumping into social sciences if I didn't have the sound 
base that engineering provides in every which way. So engineering really made me reasonably good, I think, um, at problem solving. Now that problem could be, like Ira was just mentioning, uh, creating a a simple feedback form, picture-based feedback form for na- for Nepalese, you know, um, host communities. Or that problem could be unpacking climate models to then draw social science into it, which I do regularly at work now. So analytical skills, problem solving, the ability to work in teams and just be generally adaptive in whatever um, situation I found myself in, I think are, are absolutely all the skills that engineering taught me in many different ways during the four years that I was studying it. Mm, great. And Ira, um, you're obviously you're in your final year of electrical engineering. Will you continue to do this work after you graduate? I hope to continue. This is something that um, I'm very passionate about. And hopefully, yeah, I, I am an active member of Engineers Without Borders now, and I hope to be able to continue that post my studies, hopefully volunteering as well. And will you go work overseas? Well, nothing's lined up yet, but yeah. hopefully, yeah, maybe in the future, that's something that I would definitely do. Ara, I'm also keen to hear from you. Um, what, I guess, rewinding back a few years, what inspired, what or who inspired you to study engineering at uni? I think what really inspired me was kind of just my love for maths and science back in high school. I really didn't know what kind of field of engineering I wanted to do, but I did this engineering camp back in um, year 11 and you know I just loved how diverse engineering is and how practical it can really be which is why I wanted to study engineering and I really wanted to study engineering at UQ because of you know the facilities I just remember from open day you know I was just amazed by the campus and it it had a lot of opportunities um, for students during their degree you know you could go to Um, You can study overseas. You can do a lot of things here at UQ, which is, yeah, why I really wanted to come here. Have you been on any exchange programs? No, but I did do a, I guess it was kind of a short-term exchange. Went to China for a month and I went with other engineering students here from UQ. um, And we, uh, it was a innovation and entrepreneurship program in China. Um, and we were basically building an app for a month, which was a really good experience. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Just really interested to hear why electrical engineering. Yeah. So like I said, I don't really know what I wanted to do when I first came in to study engineering. Um, I initially thought that I was actually going to go th- towards the um, biomedical path because I just thought that I was interested in, in health and that kind of connected the health side with engineering but then during my first uh, semester, I really enjoyed the electrical courses that I did, which is why um, I kind of continued on with it. And yeah, just throughout my experiences, I've always enjoyed the projects that we've been given and you know the different problems that you can solve with an electrical engineering degree. I think electrical engineering is very diverse. You can go to a lot of different industries with it. So, yeah. Yeah, great. So you're about to finish your engineering degree. What's yep. next for you? So I was lucky enough to get a job for Arcadis as a, an electrical engineer and working uh, mostly with kind of the power industry, mm. um, which is something that, yeah, I really enjoy. Did you do your work experience with them? or No. I've mm. Yeah, I was actually lucky enough to have done a number of uh, internships throughout my undergraduate degree. 
all throughout different industries. So I started off working for Origin Energy, so in the oil and gas sector. And then I also did an internship for Accenture, which is um, a technology consulting company. So that was something that was really different to what I thought electrical engineering was. Um, and then went on to do another placement at Energy Queensland, which is where the power industry comes in. Yeah, Fantastic, Ira. And it's great that you did try those things um, because it's good to know what you do and don't like, more importantly. Exactly. So um, it's great that you've um, got a job lined up and you've chosen your career path. So congrats for that. Thank you. Vicky, over to you now. You will now be teaching the new humanitarian engineering course at UQ. Tell us a little bit about that and really what the benefit of this course will be to engineering students. Yeah, so we are very excited um, about this new course. UQ is only just starting it, so it's the first time to be delivered in semester two this year. Humanitarian engineering, I think, is kind of a meta discipline. So it's not a discipline in and of itself, but it's something that complements all the other core engineering disciplines. It complements your core engineering knowledge as a student with other critical skills such as effective communication and working in teams and um, having a sensibility um, towards ethical and moral responsibilities. Working, as Ira said, with organizations such as the EWB and then working in a different cultural setting. So humanitarian engineering really allows you to build on your existing engineering knowledge to then problem solve and help address some global issues such as this can be poverty or you know developing interventions for clean modern and reliable forms of energy or water and sanitation and um, you name it so it's really a great great field of study and we're very excited about it and we hope more and more students in the future can come and take this course what a great way to learn to help that disadvantaged communities and solve some global problems. So we've reached the end of the episode, but before we go, we're going to get to know you a little bit better with some fast facts. Are you ready? Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) If you could write a book about something, what would it be? Now that you asked this question, I think I'd like to talk about or write about my journey from a middle-class Indian family to studying overseas and then um, making a life in Australia. And as a, as a woman, I think that would be quite an interesting book because I've got lots of interesting stories to tell. I love it, Vigya. I would buy that one. <laughs> Great. I should, yeah. I should get my pens going. Yes, you should get started. <laughs> I think I would not necessarily write something about my life, but probably something more fun. I'm really into baking, so probably would... And I would buy that. ...document, yeah, (laughs) some of my recipes or something. I don't know. Oh, lovely. Awesome. If you could instantly become an expert at something, what would it be? Learning to play a classical instrument. Mm, Like which one? So my son, who's eight, he plays... Nearly eight. He plays tabla, which is an Indian percussion drum, sort of a instrument and I'd like to play harmonium which is kind of a piano combined with what's it called a keyboard yeah so much a piano but it's more a keyboard like I have very fond memories of listening to her yeah lovely and what a great musical team you're gonna form (laughs) I don't know if my son would like to play with me but yeah I'd love to learn an instrument I I have zero musical bone in my body (laughs) I think languages 
I think, yeah, just being able to communicate with, you know, people with different languages, that'd be pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. What would be the first language that you learn? Oh, probably like Chinese or something. I don't know, something really different to what I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. Do you speak another language at the moment? Yeah, I speak the Tagalog, which is the Filipino language. Who is your biggest inspiration? I look up to so many people and, yeah, I couldn't possibly say one, but maybe a cliche answer and say my dad. He's a great engineer. I've got the PhD bug from him. So he's a mechanical engineer. He is a trekker. So he's 66 and he's just done the Kailash Mansarovar trip and has written a book about it. So Oh, wow. So he's an engineer, but he likes adventure and sport. And yeah, so yeah, maybe him. Yeah. It's the only thing I can think of right now, to be honest. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to go with the cliche as well, probably with my parents. You know, I've just seen them, you know, do all the hard work that they've done for the family. Um, so yeah, that's really inspirational to me. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us. It was so great to have you. Thanks, Karigi. It was lovely to be here and just chatting about our passions. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review. It'll help others to find the series. My name is Katiki Gupta.